thus says the Lord. And so God is going to reward his prophet by saying, it's about time you find yourself somebody. And set Hosea up with his soulmate. And so God tells Hosea, go marry a prostitute. I don't know about you, but if I'm Hosea, I don't, I, I'm going to say, uh, excuse me, one more time. Now, it is true that God does not say, go marry Gomer. For some reason, I said Homer in the uh, first service, that, not Homer. Go marry Gomer. He doesn't say that specifically. It's, I mean, you, Hosea seemingly has a choice from among the prostitute group. Go choose the prostitute you'd like, marry her, have kids. Now, that in and of itself is contradictory to what many of us think about God, love, marriage, and especially the idea of a soulmate, right? Because what this implies is a reality that all of us should accept, is that our lives is not for ourselves. That the truth is, we exist and are purposed for God. That's so hard for us in our sinful, fallen, prideful selves to acknowledge that everything in our life is for God, for the Creator. That somehow there's not even a percent in there that's for me. And to recognize that that all goes out. And so God would even call me and commission me and put me in a marriage that would be so incredibly difficult that God would put me in a marriage with someone who would be unfaithful. And even further, that God would do that knowingly so that he could use it as a testimony for him. For many of us, that is contradictory to the way we view God and the way we view love and the way we view marriage. And so already you can tell that today is one of those days in which the Bible will not exactly line up with the politically correct cultural sensitivities that we bring uh, to a church service that's going to happen this morning. It's throughout Scripture, and for us, the reader, the studier of Scripture, we have to make a decision about that, about the fact that the Bible is not politically correct. I think there are three choices that we have with that. First, we can just go ahead and play ignorant. We can pretend that things aren't in the Bible, that, for example, God never commanded Israel to kill women and children. We can pretend that it's just not there. We can pretend that God never deals bluntly with very taboo subjects and speaks to them directly. We can pretend that he didn't make a sign with his people so that they would be known all over the world and chose that sign to be circumcision. And that's kind of odd too. But we can just pretend that those things aren't there. And we can pretend that God doesn't acknowledge us in our sin as a prostitute. We can just pretend those things aren't there. Or, second option we have, is that we can recognize that Scripture was written a long time ago. And to the people back then, they weren't as developed and as sophisticated as us. And so now, in order to make Scripture relevant today, it needs our help to smooth out some of those rough edges, to communicate what it really means today for the 21st century. Or third, we can recognize that Scripture is absolute. It is the perfect revelation of God that transcends generations and any discomfort we feel culturally is intended and strategic work of God. 
And so even in our discomfort and even in our tension, we can recognize that God's word is absolute. Obviously, I like option three. So let's begin. (laughs) Hosea chapter one, verse two. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer. So immediately we're introduced to the parallel purpose of the book of Hosea. Hosea will represent God, his unfaithful prostitute wife, Gomer, will represent Israel. And throughout the next three chapters specifically, we will hear their story. And at times it will become almost impossible to tell if God is talking to Israel or Hosea is talking to Gomer. And I'll go ahead and just acknowledge a weakness I have. I'm a little random and scatterbrained, and so sometimes my names get crossed. If that happens, and just understand what we mean. Gomer, the prophet, marries Homer, the prostitute, and pursues her. What did I say? <laughs> I said Homer again! Mary's going, see, see, Roger, when you started laughing, I knew, man, I knew. Hosea marries Gomer. There we go. God is in a covenant with Israel. So stay in the parallels. Don't don't laugh at me too much because we're going to go through it so quick because of everything in our service today and to get to the Lord's Supper. But as we walk through it, here's what I want you to see. It also parallels today God's relationship with us. So in chapter 1, we find that Hosea and Gomer have three children. The first child we know is a child between Hosea and Gomer. The next two we don't know. The Bible doesn't state. It's my opinion that they're not, that they're children from her and her prostitution. But there are three children, and each child will be given a name as a prophecy to Israel. First, there's the name Jezreel, which means that God is sowing judgment against Israel. And if I had the time, I would take you way back into the text, but what I would want you to see is it is a violent judgment. The next child is named No Mercy. That's the kid that you pick first, like in kindergarten, to be on the kickball team. I'll take No Mercy. I love that name. Anyway, no mercy. And what God is saying is, I will no longer have mercy on Israel. The third child is named not my people. Because God is saying back to Israel, watch this, you're not my people. The interesting like, actual translation here is not I am. And if you go all the way back to when God first revealed himself to Israel, when he first revealed himself to these people coming out, he says, Moses goes, who do I say sent me? He says, tell them I am sent you. And now the play on words is not I am. You don't know me. You don't know me. And so during all of this time and throughout this transition, Gomer continues to be unfaithful despite Hosea's plea. Israel continues to be unfaithful despite God's plea. Let's read verse 2 of chapter 2. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. In other words, we're not living out the intimacy. We're not living out what we have been called to live out. 
that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Least I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. Again, as chapter 2 begins, it's a beautiful chapter. It's hard to tell sometimes if this is, you know, Hosea or God. Or, but the parallel walks through chapter 2, and it's a beautiful chapter. And one of the things that we'll be tempted to do as we read some of this is to see God as the angry, vindictive husband who's just out to get Israel. Or to see Hosea who's just out to get Gomer. That's not the intent, that's not the motive, and we'll catch that a little bit later. But the thing that I want you to see here is that God's covenant with Israel, and it's very similar to our marriage covenant, it's present. And and let me say it this way, there are no singles as it relates to our relationship with Christ. There are no singles there. You are either in a covenant relationship with God or you are prostituting yourself out for something else. Here's why why that's the case. God is our creator. He created us for a specific purpose for him. We are to take all of our affection, all of our joy, everything from him. This is our purpose. We're not peers with him. It's what we were created to do, a relationship with him. It's it's a created covenant bond between man and God. And when we take our affection, when we take our joy, when we take our pursuits and go any other direction than God, we are prostituting ourselves out against that covenant, against that created purpose. We are forgetting God. And so God says back, I will make her as in the day she was born. talks about stripping her naked, right? This is a reference back to Israel when they are in the land of Egypt. And they have nothing. Yes, they've been promised to be a great nation with stars. And the heavens cannot number them. And yet, they're slaves. They, They have nothing. And so they cry out to God repentant, broken, humble, help us because they have nothing to offer. God is saying, I will make Israel like that so that she will cry out to me once again. Verse 5 of chapter 2. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and my water, my wool, and my flax, my oil, and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, Hosea, God speaking, and I will build a wall against her so she cannot find her path. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. For it was better for me then than now. Kind of has a prodigal son feel to it a little bit. Listen, 
God's love and mercy is the motive behind his correction in our lives. We need to understand that. God is not out just to get you. There is a place for judgment. But understand, when I talk about the correction of God, God will do whatever it takes. And it is the most loving, merciful thing rather than just letting us go. He will do whatever it takes to bring us back to him, to bring us back to the one that our covenant relationship is to be with. My, uh, my little girl, one of the few things, she's not afraid of anything, but one of the few things she's afraid of is the attic. I don't know why. She's not really super afraid of it, but a little bit. And a while back, um, she was in a lot of trouble, and I, being a bad parent, yeah, being a bad parent, threatened to put her in the attic Now listen, I know this is recorded. I have never put my child in the attic. I don't do that. But apparently I will threaten them. And so we're eating, and this goes on for like 20 minutes because she's pretty good at realizing that I'm really silly. And and so she's discerning, are you telling the truth, are you not? But I can tell she's worried. And after about 20 minutes, she says kindly, Dad, will you please stop talking? You're really making my stomach hurt. I mean, I was stressing the kid out, right? And Amy's giving me the look like, this is not good parenting. And, you know, I'm like, well, it's working. <laughs> but anyway, so we're, <laughs> we're going through this dynamic. And so we, we eat, and I pick, up, I pick up my daughter, and it dawns on me that I have a great teachable moment in the midst of my bad parenting. And so I sit down, and I explain to my daughter that I'm not putting her in the attic, and I would never put her in the attic because that's just mean. And I don't correct you to be mean. The motive of correction and discipline isn't to be mean to you. It's not to show you my anger. It's to pull you back into where you were supposed to be. It's because I love you. And I never want to punish you to just be mean with you. Do you understand? This times a thousand is God. It's not that he's just mad at them, and he's not that he's just hurt and he's vindictive. He so desperately is calling us back to what he has purposed us to be. And so Gomer, however, doesn't feel this way. Gomer has bought into a lie. She thinks she is getting all of this pleasure, all of these provisions, all of these things from her lovers, from somewhere else. She doesn't feel love for Hosea, and she really doesn't know if she ever really loved him. She believes that her lovers have met her needs. But Hosea writes in verse 8, And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Hosea was really the one who was providing for Gomer. And listen, God is really the one who provides for us. And it's such an easy slope to slip into the things, well, I work hard and I provide for myself. It's such an easy thing to slip in to think that somehow you are earning all these good things that are around you. 
Can I just tell you, every good thing in our lives comes from the Lord. That's why it's a wonderful act of worship as we take tithes and offerings because we recognize in that that he is ultimately the provider, that it's ultimately his. A few quick observations from this section. First, love is absolute. It is absolute. It is defined absolutely because of who God is, and love is an attribute of him. So in other words, love is not measured by the recipient. It's not. Gomer doesn't get to tell Hosea what's loving or not. Love either is or it isn't. Sometimes the most loving thing is telling somebody something they don't want to hear. Doing something for someone they don't want done. Love is absolute. It is defined by who God is and who he's called us to be. Second, our emotions are a gift from God, but they are fallen and broken and can mislead us. This is why Scripture, I think, tells us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Again and again, Scripture tells us to set our emotions on something. In other words, that truth should dictate how we should feel. You shouldn't just come here and hope that you feel a sense of awe or hope that you feel the Holy Spirit. You should come here knowing that God is worthy of worship, purposing yourself to feel a sense of awe, to recognize his spirit. There's a difference in that. One is just waiting for an emotional reaction. The other one is pursuing the truth of the revelation of who God is. Third, God is the provider of every good thing. Everything comes from him. And yet, Gomer, Israel, they have broken their covenant and forgotten their love. Hosea 2 verse 13 says, I will punish her for the feast days of the bells when she offered burnt offerings to them and adorned herself with ring and jewelry and went out after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. She didn't show her attention to God. She didn't get all dressed up for him. It was for something else. She fixed her attention and her affections and went to play the prostitute. God is the one source for our affection, for our pursuits. And yet here, Israel, Gomer, have forgotten their love. I want to remind you in this moment that marriage is a covenant. It's not a contract. It's not an agreement. It's not a partnership. It is absolutely a covenant. And I want to take you back to remind you that it is a covenant that is orchestrated and instituted before the fall. Before we sinned, God gave us marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is such a good thing. Paul quotes the exact same passion passage in Ephesians 5, 31. But then in verse 32 says this mystery, the mystery of a husband and wife coming together in a covenant relationship, this mystery is profound. It's wowing. And I say to you that it refers to Christ and the church. What does that mean? That means the primary responsibility for me as a husband, the primary purpose I have as a husband is to live out my role in a way that gives testimony to the gospel. 
the primary responsibility we have in our marriage is not even to one another. It's to live in such a way that our marriage stands out to the faithfulness and the love of God. This is what Paul's saying. This is what this mystery is, that we, even in our union, are a living testimony of the goodness of God. Listen, even in our complete mess. You say, my marriage is hard. I understand that. Jesus, the only time that divorce is at all communicated and prescribed to be permissible in the New Testament is when Jesus talks about adultery. And then, even then, he goes, but listen, but even this is because of the hardness of your heart, because of your sin. For it was not this way from the beginning. In other words, it's not the purpose of marriage. This isn't what it's there. God's not divorcing us. He doesn't, this is the point, he doesn't divorce Israel here. So you say, man, my husband, he is a jerk. He just doesn't care. My wife is loud and quarrelsome. You, you don't even know, my spouse is unfaithful. Listen, if you're thinking about divorce, don't. Even in the mess of your marriage, God has set you apart to give the most beautiful testimony of the love of God. Pursue your spouse. Pursue them. Don't give up. And be reminded as a child of God that he has not given up on you. Some of you in here say, you don't, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how unfaithful I've been. You don't know how much I've hurt the people around me, how much I've hurt my family. You don't know the things I've done. You're right, I don't. God does. And instead of just saying, forget you, he has pursued you. He pursues you. And listen to how he pursues you. Verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. And bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. All of a sudden, when you expect the anger of God, when it is clear that Israel has been unfaithful, has betrayed them, Just when you expect the anger, vindictive God, instead, in a very lighthearted way, you kind of get, you know, Marvin Gaye kicking in the background, and all of a sudden there's this nice tone, and God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to allure my baby back. There is a pursuit of intimacy. See, even when we talk about it, it kind of seems silly to set it that way, but this is the setting. When that word allure, it means that Hosea is saying, No, I'm going to speak tenderly to your heart, passionately, with intimacy. I've not given up on you, and I'm not here to beat you down. I'm here because I want you back. He goes on and says, I'm going to make hope where there was once trouble. The Valley of Achor, that doesn't mean a lot to us, but if you're familiar with Scripture, you remember a guy by the name of Achan. He was with Israel when Israel conquered Canaan, and Achan took from what was God's. And God had Israel kill Achan and his family, even his livestock. And Achan earned the name Troubler of Israel. And the valley where this happened is the valley here of Achor. And it's known the Valley of Trouble. So here's the parallel. 
Even in the mess that you've made, even in the trouble, even in your unfaithfulness, I'm going to make that a testimony of hope. See, that's what this morning is. There is the reality to recognize that we, in our sin, are whores. That's true. It's just true. And any defensiveness around it only minimizes the love and the gospel of God. Because in the spite of us, he pursues us with love and gives us hope where we had just made trouble. Hosea is left by Gomer. Gomer eventually just leaves, and she begins to shack up with a pimp. She's left, completely abandoned, her husband. And in chapter 3 of Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go again. Go again. Don't give up. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver, Homer, and a lettuce of barley. Listen, let me just pause. Hosea couldn't even just go to Gomer and say, come home. Gomer had sold herself out. Hosea had to purchase his own wife back. I want to remind you of something of a parallel that is beautiful. God had to purchase us as well. It wasn't just as simple as, hey, come on back. It took the life, the body, and the blood of his son to reconcile us back to the relationship God had intended. He had to go buy us. This tells us so much about the love of God. And he said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without an epid or the household gods. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return, seek the Lord their God, David their king, and they shall come to fear the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. This is a little bit of a prophecy about what's about to happen to Israel. And as we're reading through the story, you, you, you know how that works. They're going to fall. And they're going to remain that way for a season. But God will not give up on them. And so, why? Why all this? What is happening? And in the next five minutes, I just want to summarize all this, and then we're going to close. I want you to understand that this is happening because God is making us spotless, without blemish, perfect bride. He is starting over what we could not start and doing so with righteousness. Listen to Hosea chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. And I will betroth you to me forever. In other words, there's an engagement. In other words, it is new. It is forever he says again, I will betroth you to me in righteousness, perfection, in justice. 
in steadfast love and in mercy. And then the third time he says, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Something we could not do left to ourselves. For what purpose? The next sentence is so key. And you shall know the Lord your God. Now listen, take just a minute, understand the parallel, go Old Testament and think, you know, he knew her, right? Understand what we're talking about. There is an intimacy here. There is an intimacy. I'm not talking just sexual, but I'm talking the deepest intimacy. You will know God. See, this is what Israel has missed. In all their religious practice, they don't know God. God is going to make himself known to them. They are going to live as the covenant was intended. Ephesians chapter 5 connects these dots for us. It's a section about marriage, and it says, beginning in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives. Listen to the parallel. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 26. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might be present, or excuse me, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. God isn't pursuing you because he's angry with you, God is pursuing you because he wants to make you without blemish. He wants to make you right, he wants to put you back into a created relationship with him that is perfect. He loves you. And so as we sing this morning, his perfect love overcomes. I want you to understand what that really means. We were not something worthy of his love. And yet in spite of us, he has shown us mercy and perfect love. That in the midst of our unfaithfulness, He gave His Son to pay the penalty for our sin, for our unfaithfulness, who died on a cross and rose three days later so that you and I, through faith, could claim His account as our own, that through our faith in Him, we could stand before God perfect, spotless, and have the relationship with Him that we were intended to have. Everything else is prostituting ourselves out after a lie. God gives us hope where there is once trouble. He has modeled for us and shown us perfect love. As a Christian this morning, as one who is a Jesus follower, it ought to empower you with a sense of awe and appreciation for the Lord. It ought to give you the courage to raise up out of whatever is your past and to grab a hold of his love looking forward. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, this morning I pray that it would break your heart to understand your unfaithfulness and that in your brokenness you would cry out to God, 
placing saving faith in Jesus, acknowledging that your sin has separated you from him, that you have been unfaithful, but that God loved you so much that he sent his only son to pay the penalty for your sins, and in him you are placing your faith, in him you are placing your trust to make you spotless, perfect bride. You may have never prayed before in your life, but this morning, if you don't know Jesus, I pray right where you are sitting that you would just take a moment and communicate that, confess that sin, place saving faith in his son Jesus. Be changed. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. I'm going to ask the team to come on up. We're going to close a little differently this morning. We're going to close in a time of response, in a time of prayer. And we're going to transition into the Lord's Supper. A testimony of what Christ did on the cross for us. As a way to acknowledge and to give praise. This isn't just something the church does. This is an ordinance. This is something we're commanded to do. To remember the love and the sacrifice of God. In our unfaithfulness, we weren't just told to come back, but we had to be bought. Church, I pray that as we take the Lord's Supper this morning we will remember the price that was paid. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, please make today the day you place faith in, saving faith in him. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love that is perfect, that overcomes even our unfaithfulness. Thank you for the testimony of Hosea. Lord, it is culturally sometimes uncomfortable for us but it is so good and so deep to understand how much you love us. May we leave this place encouraged, empowered, bold with the love you show us. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.